0: you're listening to state of the arts a show about the arts theater and creatives in and around the philippines located in the upcoming circuit performing arts theater in circuit makati makati's culture and entertainment district where something amazing is always on On each episode, we invite industry leaders, arts practitioners, and audience members to talk about current events that shape and further the arts in the country. My name is Christopher. Together, let's talk art. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of State of the Arts. Joining me today is an actor, director, and producer, who has appeared in numerous stage, TV, and film projects. Now, he's using his passion to help his constituents and the Filipino public as an active government official. We're very excited he was able to squeeze us in, as we know is a busy man. Listeners, please join me in welcoming the incumbent representative for the 4th District of Pangasinan, the Honorable Congressman Christopher DeVanesha.
1: Thanks for having me, Christopher.
0: Welcome to the show, Congressman De DeVanesha. Thank you again for joining me today. I know you have a lot on your plate, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Before we dive head on to the meat of our conversation, I wanted our listeners or those that might have not been familiar to briefly hear about how you got your start in the performing world. What led you to the performing arts?
1: All right. So, um, like you mentioned, I appeared um, on television and film back when I was like a quote-unquote child star. (laughs) Um, but I think that was sort of like a natural occurrence since my family is very much deep in the entertainment industry. Uh, my grandfather was a founder of Sampaguita Pictures, uh, which was one of the three lit- leading uh, film outfits back then uh, on what is considered to be the golden age of Philippine cinema. Uh so I was active in the audiovisual sector when I was younger, and then of course I had to leave, uh, so I could focus on my studies, and then I think it was around two thousand five, right after my sister passed away in an unfo- in an unfortunate tragedy, that I decided to join a a workshop with Repertory Philippines. Um, she she actually got into the performing arts before I did. Uh, she was ab- about a year or two ahead of me uh, in joining a workshop, uh, a, th- a summer theater workshop. And so I guess I wanted to be as close to her as possible. That's why I signed up uh, for that workshop. Um, and I remember that summer... I actually signed up for two workshops, uh one for theater and one for photography. But obviously, <laughs> the one that I really latched onto was the was the one in theater. And so from then on, um I was able to join some professional theater productions with Repertory Philippines. Uh I did Emperor's New Clothes as well as uh Aladdin, uh where I played Iago. <laughs> <laughs> the parrot. Um and a narrator, so I actually had two roles depending on which performance uh was uh going on. And then um I think shortly after that I remember auditioning for a show in trumpets and it was there that I met Odie Himara, who is of course known as the leading man of Philippine theater or the first gentleman. Um, he's also the current president of Phil Stage, which is the uh, alliance of professional companies in the theatrical arts. And, uh, well, I bombed that audition because <laughs> I was also sick. And I also just really wanted to audition to be with my friends and to be always surrounded by uh, creative people. Um And... Do you remember
0: the production you auditioned for?
1: No. <laughs> That's a funny thing. I don't even remember what show it was. Um, but it was there that he suggested that, uh, since I put in my audition form that I was a student, I was studying in Ateneo de Manila University at that time for college. It was there where he suggested that I um, audition or join Ateneo Blue Repertory which is like the one of the three performing arts organizations in Ateneo. So that's what I did. I auditioned. I got in. My first production was Hope for the Flowers, where I played Stripe, the caterpillar. And then I remember I did High School Musical also, where I played um a, a, a thespian. Well, originally a jock. And then they realized that... Uh, parang di pala ako bagay so I was moved to the thespian category. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed, I think more than performing, I just really enjoyed being surrounded by artists.
0: That's great. It probably has a lot to do with almost all of it, being surrounded by a creative family too. Yeah. So,
1: you know, but of course I always had stage fright. Um. You know, of course, I have anxiety, so I get nervous a lot. Uh, But of course, there's also a high that comes with being on stage. And especially if you complete a show and then you take a bow in front of your audiences. Um, But then I realized later on, as I started, you know, trying out uh, different roles in the theater, like production management or assistant directing uh, or directing eventually, I enjoyed that side of theater more than being a performer. So that sort of what launched me into this track of being a director. And then uh, after college, uh, a bunch of my workshop mates and friends from the theater wanted to put up their own theater company, um, called Nine Works Theatrical. So they invited me to join the company. So I, I am currently a board member of that. Um, But I also played various roles, uh, in the company's, I think by now, 11 year history. So, you know, I did marketing, I did assistant directing, um, professionally. And then about six years ago, it it was around that point where I had like a creative shift. Uh, because most of the, uh, productions that we were doing were like, uh, Broadway and West End production. So more of the, you know, commercial, uh, large scale musicals but it it was around that time when i was starting to gear towards you know off broadway um off off broadway uh fringe theater so more of like the indie indie kind of theater so it was around uh six years ago when we established like a sister company um of nine works theatrical which is Called the Sandbox Collective. Um, so I'm the managing artist direct, artistic director of that company. So we we launched with Danny Girl, which is a musical about a nine year old girl with leukemia who lost her hair, but instead of you know sitting back and just accepting her fate, she decided to fight back, and she goes on all these like fantastical. Uh, imaginative adventures to find her find her lost hair and also find the answer to the question why is cancer so that that choice of a musical to launch the sandbox collective with uh became sort of like the trajectory of the kind of shows that we would be doing um so you know eventually we did like a monologue series called no filter uh, which is like sort of like a vagina monologues, but for millennials and the millennial experience. So that was very successful back in 2014. It's now a book, and then took a hiatus because yeah, I got into government, um, and then 2018, uh, Sandbox came back with like this massive hit of a musical, uh, called Himala isang musical, which is based on the film, which starred Nora O'Nor. And yeah, that was very successful, kind of groundbreaking in a way because it was an immersive kind of production. Like, as you enter theater, you feel like you're in the barangay with them and the actors. You can smell the coconut oil. It was like, uh, that was lathered on the actors' bodies. Like, you really feel like you're a voyeur looking into this uh into all these events that were happening in the town and then it even rains on stage at some point so yeah that was quite groundbreaking and then and then yeah the succeeding shows after that from lungs which starred Jake Cuenca and Sabu said it was a very intimate show and then of course every brilliant thing which is another hit it's a one woman show uh, where the audiences are as much a part of the experience as the actor herself. And so it was interactive. It was about mental health. Um, and it was around the time where the implementing rules and regulations of the Mental Health Act was just released. And so, it's, I don't know, parang the kinds of shows that Sandbox ended up doing, it ended up being like a synthesis of like what's happening in society, as well as the events within the play or the live event. So that's sort of become our, our North Star for the kind of shows that we do. And that's how I got into the performing arts. Oh, wonderful.
0: Now, do you still get to dabble and get to do some artistic projects now that you're busy with all of your government duties and obligations?
1: Yeah, of course. I tried to find time for it and actually I was really slated to direct um for Repertory Philippines so this would be sort of like a comeback to the company that started it all for me um I was supposed to direct Rodgers and Hammerstein's Carousel
0: Oh you were going to do that wow yeah
1: and uh you know I had big plans for it it was going to be a reimagined production uh of course trying to um synthesize my work in government as well as my proclivities in the arts to try and find this type of forum theater where you know ideas can be discussed you know as a material carousel is problematic because it has themes of like you know misogyny violence against women and i wanted to put that front and center in how the production was going to be staged um but then yeah that was supposed to have premiered uh, May 1, and along with the uh, dozens of other productions that were slated to perform between March 15 and the end of the year, all of that got canceled.
0: Of course, of course. Well, we're going to talk more about that later on. I wanted to say your parents are both respected politicians, when did you decide it was time to follow their footsteps? Um, I think
1: it was around 2015. Uh, this is hot on the heels of No Filter, uh, that original show that we did. Uh, of course, they were, you know, convincing me that you know I should um, consider, strongly consider, um, you know, uh, joining government. Of course, I needed a lot of convincing. And it was a lot of debate with them, and I really you know prayed to God for you know inspiration, but something just clicked um especially when my mom mentioned tourism, and you know I associate with I associate tourism with you know experience and uh creativity, so I found some kind of uh potential in my mind of how I can possibly merge um both passions and um yeah that's sort of what convinced me ultimately to to run for office so I filed in 2015 and then I won um I won in 2016 during the elections and now I'm currently on my second term of office as congressman of Fourth District of Pangasinan, um, but I, you know, admittedly, you know, I championed many different causes in Congress. Uh, I tried to be all about you know the creative industries, uh, but then I had to do a survey of my district, and I saw that you know, there's really a lot that needed to be said about agriculture, about tourism. About many other sectors, so I kind of dedicated my first term to advancing policies and programs in support of that, um, as well as into the second term. Um, yeah, I was actively pursuing, you know, policies on on uh, agriculture. For example, I'm championing uh, a Magna Carta for young farmers to encourage them. the The young uh, people to get into farming um, but see it in a different kind of viewpoint, not as the traditional farming, which maybe uh can be viewed as not so sexy or not so attractive to stakeholders, uh, but rather see it as like agribusiness, agritourism, find the creative side to farming. So that's something that I was passionately advocating for. And uh, in the last few months before we adjourned in Congress last March um, and before the COVID crisis happened, uh, I was also uh, steeped into uh, advancing some policies for freelancers um, as well as uh, for the occupational safety standards uh, in the film and television sector, uh, of course, more popularly known as the Eddie Garcia Bill. So, yeah, uh, we sort of touched upon it already. Um, and then this crisis just sort of, you know, amplified, amplified uh, all these uh, initiatives.
0: Right. It just amplified everything.
1: and it just proved what we always knew about the freelance sector, of which, you know, maybe 80-85% of workers in the performing arts fall under that category. That freelancers are very much vulnerable.
0: I was going to ask you, listening to everything you were talking about earlier, did you always know you were going to be a public servant?
1: Uh, It's so funny because, like, I remember four years ago, I attended this event in Manila Peninsula. And uh, Senator Mig Subiri happened to be in that same event. And then after which um, we hung out in the lobby and then, you know, we were having a conversation and he was asking me like, Oh, when are you going to get into government? And I was like, Oh, uh, never. <laughs> and then I was like, and then he was like, Oh, never say never. Cause I used to say that same thing to my parents. And then eventually here I am. And then it's just so funny how that's exactly what ended up happening um but then now that I've found some kind of synthesis between my work in the public sector and the private sector, uh, now it's really just sort of galvanized me to want to you know advance all these uh causes, you know champion for example, right now live the live event sector um in Congress. Uh Last week, I delivered a privileged speech on it just to raise some awareness and open people's hearts and minds to the sector that's long been neglected uh as well as open their hearts and minds to the plight of freelancers um and you know going back to the district, there is a connection as well because there are so many freelancers in my district that it's only now that I'm actually able to touch base with them because um since two thousand sixteen, I wouldn't say I wouldn't consider them as my traditional stakeholders, because I'm always working closely with farmers, with you know um, the local governments, the the stakeholders in the communities. Um, so you can say that you know freelancers are non traditional stakeholders, at least for my representation. It now I'm able to touch base with them, and then basically, yeah, they can resonate with. Everything that uh, freelancers are going through, um, if anything, this crisis, this crisis, yes, it revealed their vulnerability because they're not formal workers, so they don't have traditional employer-employee relationships, and so they don't benefit from all the thirteen-month pay, the paid leaves, the SSS, Phil Health, pag EBIG, all of that. So they didn't qualify for the assistance from the Department of Labor and Employment. Neither are they considered a priority sector by the Department of Social Welfare and Development, such that they receive social amelioration. So freelancers are really in this weird policy limbo. And my freelancer protection bill that we were already tackling in Congress before we adjourned last March I guess now more than ever, we've established just how important it is that this bill gets heard and gets passed into law at the soonest possible time.
0: Congressman Devanesha. we're going to talk a lot about that more later on. I was listening to your speech at the House of Representatives a few weeks back, and you briefly mentioned about the president's economic agenda and how the arts and entertainment are listed on there at number eight. Can you briefly talk about that?
1: Yeah, so at the start of the Duterte administration, um, the NEDA, or the National Economic Development Authority, as well as you know, the economic cluster, they presented a 10-point socioeconomic agenda. And like most stakeholders in the creative economy, I was so elated to see that in number eight, um, there's inclusion of arts and culture. Of course, it's lumped in with sports um, as well as science and technology. So you know, uh, you know, it. What I was under the impression that this would be sort of like a priority, you know, for the administration, as you know, alongside the other points uh, or the other components of the agenda. Um, But then, unfortunately, like in the last four years, we've only been able to pass uh, very few laws pertaining to arts and culture. I think some are more on the uh, cultural aspect, um, but in terms of like the economic aspect of it, uh, I think the closest one would be the law that was recently signed um, providing um, financial Subsidy to performing arts companies, so I mean that was quite that was quite you know groundbreaking in a sense. Um, the accredited, the accredited or recognized uh, performing arts company per uh, category would receive um, substantial subsidy from government to be able to you know uh, produce more work to be able to facilitate research and development, um, and many others that are needed, sorely needed by the sector. But of course, the, the IRR, or the implementing rules and regulations for this law that is required before it's able to be implemented, has not yet been released. So it's still not in effect, um, uh, if, if you were to be technical about it. So basically, It's a priority, but not much has been done about it. So that's something that we are looking into very closely, especially now that we are in a crisis. But in crisis, there's also an opportunity to be able to reshape business as usual into what I said in my speech, uh, which is business unusual. Uh, Meaning to say, what if creative industries, and the creative economy finally is able to take front and center? And what if government starts paying attention? Um, what are the possibilities that can be unlocked for this sector?
0: And speaking of the socioeconomic agenda, why do you think it is important for the general public to know that the arts and entertainment industry is something that contributes to the country's GDP?
1: Right. Um, it's very important for the public to know this because actually no it's very important for the public to be reminded of this because they know it already and in a a lot of ways they have been patronizing the creative economy even before the COVID crisis hit Um, and especially in this two month uh, quarantine that we've all been in basically everybody's turned to the output of the creative economy just to help them survive, really. Um, from all the shows that you know we're watching on Netflix or even on free television, um, all the books that we're reading, the performances that uh, recorded performances of uh, the live event sector and the performing arts that are being streamed and that we're consuming. Um, you know, the, the paintings, the music that we listen to morning, noon, and night. I mean, these are all output of the creative economy. And you know, obviously like everybody's all about the Korean drama now. But yeah, Crash Landing on You and you know, um during this quarantine I was also able to watch uh E Taiwan class. And what's wrong with Secretary Kim? Um, and I was two episodes in with uh, Sky Castle, but then I got busy. So, hindi uh, ko na siya But basically, yeah, like everyone's watching the Korean drama, uh, everyone's listening to K pop music. And in fact, when they come here, you know, stadia, stadias are filled. With uh, fans screaming, fans of all these K-pop acts, and you know, it basically that, that that business model of the creative economy. It didn't happen in a vacuum in Korea. Parang it's not it's not arbitrary that it became this big of a phenomenon, um, not just in our country but in the rest of the world. But it's actually a public and private it's actually a public private partnership there were policies that were put into place there was infrastructure and sufficient resources that was infused into these uh creative industries to allow it to pump prime and become this global you know this global force um that's really just driven the economy of South Korea, but then it's also been part of you know its influence and soft power insofar as diplomacy is concerned, insofar as tourism is concerned, and many others. So, you know, our creative industries have that same potential as well. Government just needs to take notice.
0: You're saying that there is already an awareness of the contribution that the arts and entertainment sector have. And despite all of that, why do you think the arts are always the first one on the list when people talk about cutting funds?
1: You know, something that we realized from this quarantine is that even when we all know this to be true, there is a lack of orga- organization in the private sector. And when there's a lack of organization, um, the the private sector is not able to exert some kind of public pressure on government, or even find some kind of representation, um, in order for the sector to be heard by policymakers. So it's only now that you know people have been in quarantine, so you know lives have essentially stopped. Um, the performing arts industry had to close down. And it's projected that it's the last to bounce back and recover. Um, it's only now that all these private sector stakeholders got together. Um, And that's why I'm so impressed with what the National Live Events Coalition, PH, has achieved in such a short time. They've been able to consolidate all the subsectors within live events, which includes performing arts. And, you know, admittedly, as a stakeholder in the performing arts myself, I didn't realize just how big a value chain the performing arts has um, and how it ties into these bigger sectors as well. So I think in general, yeah, there's a lack of organization and there's also a lack of data. That's the biggest bottleneck towards getting some kind of, you know, um, structural intervention from government, both transitional in this new normal and structural, meaning a more long-term kind of um, uh, long-term support for the performing arts and the other sectors of live events. Uh, that's what's lacking. Because if you're going to propose um, certain uh, policies or structural interventions, whether, for example, you want to upgrade the National Commission for Culture and the Arts into a department just so it has a seat uh, on the big table of Malacanang, or if you want to create, for example, a Music Development Council of the Philippines, which is, uh, could possibly be a music counterpart of the existing Film Development Council of the Philippines. Or if you want to create maybe like a Bureau of Creative Industries under the Department of Trade and Industry, or, or many other, you know, many other um, policies that can be pursued, uh, programs, projects, and interventions, then you always need to be able to justify that with data. And if you can't, then it's really just, you know, putting for, uh, putting forward all these agreements that you can't even justify.
0: We've been talking a lot about the creative industry and the inclusion of the National Live Events Coalition and the creation of it. I know you had mentioned during your speech about the survey that NETA, or the National Economic Development Authority, have done, and according to the results... Arts, entertainment, and recreation is the number one hardest hit sector in revenue loss, and this industry is also number six in terms of job loss during this worldwide health crisis. What is the significance of all of these numbers?
1: Yeah, so definitely there's a lack of data. Um, And, you know, it was just, you know, it's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a bad thing because obviously the industry was heavily impacted and hit.
0: I understand that as an additional measure, you're working on and proposing a freelance protection bill. Why this sector?
1: Yes. Um, so, like I said, like can you imagine if uh, you know somebody like Ryan Cayabyab, our national artist for music, is able to produce digital content in terms of teaching music to our public school students, and you even get people like Leia Salonga. You know what I mean? to like to come up with certain you know uh syllabus uh that can be rolled out uh or for dance you have somebody like lisa macuha elizalde um teaching dance uh you know the possibilities are endless actually um if uh we were to pursue this direction of upgrading the quality of uh of of content that's being downloaded to our K to 12 students. Um and it goes across other industries as well, you know. Um of course it's always it's it's a challenge like I I circled back to my other advocacy which is, you know, the Magna Carta for young farmers. Uh you know, the youth don't find farming to be sexy um because if they were think if they were to think about it in a traditional sense, you know, you know, planting rice and that song, di Dibiro, then, you know, maybe they'd much rather pursue other careers instead. Uh, but then, if you open their minds and hearts to the possibilities of agribusiness, agritourism, um, as introduced in digital content by the likes of, you know, Margarita Forest, um, of Chibo, um, in terms of, like, um, you know, farm-to-table dining, or the likes of Erwan Yousaf, you know, who's very, very passionate about food. Um, And, you know, from the likes of, uh, you know, uh, the purveyors of Costales Natural Farms, for example.
0: I believe we are talking about the points of your proposed bill. We've talked about the first two, and the others are?
1: I think I mentioned regulatory forbearance, which uh, it's a fancy term, but basically it means... um, just a little bit of leeway and flexibility in terms of you know uh regulatory policies that that affect uh the live event sector, I think one of the mo- most restrictive um, policies that affect uh stakeholders in the sector is the amusement tax because that's already about ten percent of your gross revenue. Um, but basically, in the new normal with safety protocols in place, um, it cuts it cuts the uh, the seating capacity of most theaters and venues by at least fifty percent. So imagine if uh, for a performing arts company, your break even point is like fifty to sixty percent of seating capacity. And the most you can sell is 50%. And why even bother <laughs> producing any kind of show? Um, something that I realized uh, from the concert uh, uh, sector is that for them, they need to sell 75 to 80% of their tickets to be able to break even. But then if they can only sell 50% of that, then they're even more disadvantaged than us. So, and then on top of that, you're going to have the 10% uh, amusement tax, uh, which uh, constitutionally speaking, you know, performing arts uh, should be exempt from this, but then it's not necessarily being implemented. Um, and so a lot of local governments, uh, local governments are able to get away with levying this, uh, these taxes on stakeholders in the performing arts. So I think this is uh, an opportunity to be able to revisit this policy or else I don't think performing arts will be coming back uh, not even in six to eight months if this is going to be the, the landscape in which they're going to be returning to. So yeah, that was one of our proposals. That's
0: how great their influence is.
1: Yes. So I think you know, minimum health standards being in place and all, and um, assuming that all stakeholders comply. So you have the you have the PPEs, you have the thermal scanners, you have the the alcohol and other sanitizers, and then you have the I don't know, like if it's two seats apart that uh, audiences have to be uh, seated or whatever kind of scheme that will really ensure that there's no local transmission that's going to take place uh, because that's the last thing that we want. We always have to think about the welfare of our audiences. So assuming all of that is in place and everybody is compliant, the next question is, are audiences going to come? And I think right now, consumer confidence is really down. Uh, it's like in depression levels, basically, great depression levels. So uh, I think it's also important uh, while you get you know, all the private sector stakeholders to work with government to establish you know, safety protocols, especially for the live event sector. It's also important that government embarks on a uh, strategically crafted marketing and communication campaign. To be able to inspire consumer confidence uh, for non-essential industries, um, of course, it's another argument altogether. What's essential and what's non-essential? But I'm basically that I'm basically uh, using the the definitions that were set by the IATF or the Interagency Task Force, which is headed by the Department of Health. Um, so they were able to categorize some industries as being essential and were thus allowed to operate during the quarantine. And the performing arts, the live events, are considered non-essential. But of course, you know, if you ask me in my heart of hearts, (laughs) like, performing arts is essential. Um, And uh, Deputy Speaker Lauren Legarda was just saying also, the other day, during our hearing on the new normal bill, that in some countries in Europe flowers and plants uh flowers and uh floral shops are considered essential. So I guess it's really subjective uh it, it really varies per country. But yeah, I think uh that was one of my proposals to embark on a, 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 a campaign to inspire consumer confidence uh but also use making use of our uh, creative industry talents, uh, because uh, I think they are the most effective crafters, shapers, and molders of our national consciousness. You know, um, uh, you know, back in like uh, the peak of whether it was Pangaku Sayo or another teleserye that which you know, Catherine Bernardo. Uh, was starring in if she wears a pink headband in one episode next thing you know all the girls across the country are wearing a pink headband you know what i mean but that's also really the power of uh culture arts and culture and entertainment to be able to shape and mold the national consciousness um, I mentioned in my speech that sometimes uh, the live event sector or the performing arts are able to join the national conversation as well. So you'll remember the opening of the Sea Games where the world, those world-class performances uh, sort of uh, really just took the Philippines and all those Sea uh, Games delegates by storm. Um, and it really went viral, and everybody everybody was posting about it, saying how just world class, you know, uh, the Filipino creativity and talent is, um, mm-hmm. you know. And then you will also remember, um, aside from the Sea Games, uh, Ang huling El Bimbo. Uh, when it was recently streamed, uh, wow, seven million views uh, was able to. Uh, Rack up 12 million pesos worth of donations for ABS-CBN's feeding program. Um, And of course, Bayanihan Musikahan. All those free concerts that were being uh, provided for by OPM artists. They were able to generate like what? 87 million to 90 million pesos already. That goes out into you know, feeding programs for the urban poor, um, PPEs for the medical frontliners, um, and then now they're servicing like uh sectors outside of Metro Manila Naren. So, you know, really the power of arts and culture and entertainment is so under it's so underestimated, underrated. Um, so imagine if you're able to galvanize all of that.
0: I was reading a survey done in New York for all Broadway theater growers and high up there is a potential reason for the delay in them coming back to the theater is the fear that the person sitting next to them is not going to follow any of the required safety measures. So I definitely agree with you that a good consumer confidence campaign is important and essential.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think the fifth proposal was really to enjoin... Our government agencies like the NEDA, you know, the Philippine Statistics Authority, the one that conducts the surveys, uh, the Department of Trade and Industry, uh, the Philippine Institute of Development Studies that makes all these like really uh, well thoroughly researched and well crafted uh, studies on different industries, um, as well as of course our cultural agencies like the Film Development Council and the National Commission for Culture and the Arts, it's really to enjoin them to work with the private sector to really ramp up the data collection from the creative economy. Because, like I said, it's so important to have all this data to be able to justify um, and argue uh, the need for these proposals to be prioritized. Um, without this data, then, you know, we're never going to be able to advance the creative economy of which the performing arts is a huge contributor. Um, Just earlier this morning, uh, we had a meeting with the Department of Tourism. And basically, we realized that, you know, we need also help in terms of being able to measure the impact of the performing arts on tourism. Uh, As well as, you know, the other sectors of live events Um, because we don't know how many people are flying into Metro Manila to watch shows like Rack of Ages or Ang Huling El Bimbo or eto Na Musical Na Po. You know, these are popular jukebox musicals, which are gateway experiences for non-traditional theater audiences to come, buy a ticket, and experience the beauty and wonder of the performing arts. Um, there's no there's no capacity or even know how to be able to measure uh, the impact not just on domestic tourism but as well as international tourism. Um, you know when there are touring productions that are coming here to Manila, whether it's Wicked or Phantom of the Opera or Les Misérables, or if it's a you know a festival like Wonderland, for example, we don't know how many people are flying into the Philippines to watch all these live events and shows. So again, it's really there needs to be more data collection both on the public sector side as well as the private sector so that we can we're able to concretize the socio-economic impact of our creative industries. And that requires, you know, that requires strategic And a new way of thinking. Because if you're gonna be business as usual about how arts and culture has been in the country all these years, then it's gonna be stagnant. You can't just measure it based on, you know, semantics or based on, you know, um, sound bites and anecdotes uh, from people. Because at the end of the day, it falls down to budget, it falls down to structure. And to be able to justify uh, the need for structural adjustments, then you need to be able to have the data to back it up. So if it's, if it's going to cost the government, let, let's say, $1 billion or $2 billion to uh, be able to fund a specific department dedicated to live events or the performing arts or if you're going to look for tax incentives, which will imply a reduction in tax collection and revenue. So, mwababa wasan pa ng kita yung government by extending uh, this kind of tax incentive. Then, you have to be able to justify it with a cost benefit analysis. Diba? So, what's the benefit of making this investment in the creative economy? So, that's why it's important to really ramp up the data collection. Uh, efforts of both the public and the private sector with regards to the creative economy. And of course, since I'm a stakeholder in the performing arts, most especially the performing arts.
0: So now that the bill is submitted, where does the process go next?
1: Okay, so uh, there are two bills that we're talking about here. One is the stimulus bill, which is part two of the Bayanian law. Um, The Bayanian Law was passed last month, and it was really insofar as saving lives, flattening the curve, um, providing amelioration programs for the most disadvantaged. Um, But then uh, the stimulus bill is really to help save livelihood and jobs. So it's stimulus because you have to infuse stimulus to keep the economy afloat. Because as businesses close down, then workers will be furloughed and uh, laid off. And then you're just going to create a bigger problem altogether. So uh, part of the stimulus bill is a uh, wage subsidy to freelancers. And I'm so happy that in the final cut in Congress, uh, freelance, uh, assistance to freelancers made it. So, okay, thank God so now it's on to the senate um, because again uh we are a bicameral legislature it's not just congress it's also the, it's not just the house of representatives it's also the senate so they're also discussing their version of the stimulus bill and of course we are calling all the freelancers who are uh possibly listening to this podcast Um, to make the necessary representation to lobby, to make noise to your senators so that wage subsidies to freelancers will make the cut in their version. And then once they've finalized their version, both versions will be harmonized in a bicameral conference. And then it's going to be transmitted to Malacanang for the president to sign into law. But of course, you know, it doesn't end with the Senate. There's also a battle to be waged in Malacanang because at any point, the president can sign the law or veto the law altogether because maybe the justification would be there's no more funding or there are no more funds um, for all this stimulus that's being proposed. Or if not veto the law in total, veto some provisions of the law so it's also possible that you know the wage subsidy to freelancers can still be displaced so again um given an understanding of how government works you know our 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 stakeholders in the freelance sector need to keep exerting public pressure they need to make noise um they need to organize and lobby because I think there's a general lack of understanding of how government works, um, especially in our sector, and uh, you know I'm not going to like be on some kind of high horse and say that oh I, un- I understand government works. The only reason why I do now in the last four years is because I got into government and uh, and of course, I was also political science, uh, my course is political science back in back in college um so i do understand how it works but you know not everybody seems to and so it's a challenge because uh what happens is that there's this general feeling of helplessness on the part of freelancers and then there is anger that is manifested um, uh, on social media um, but then actually they're they're is a power that they uh, wield um, if they're able to galvanize it correctly and funnel and direct all that energy into you know advancing causes that will benefit not just them but the sector at large so it's important it's important to organize it's important to make noise it's important to help in the data generation so if there are surveys especially from credible bodies that you trust like right now national live events coalition um, has been able to earn the trust of its stakeholders so they are filling up the survey Um, they are sharing data that normally they would shy from revealing that uh, about you know their livelihood their income or whatever it is um it's important uh because, again, it's the data that will propel us into the future.
0: Congressman Devanesha. you know, everybody's worried. Everybody around the world is scared. How do you instill calm and confidence to the local creative industry folks who are perhaps looking at you and are anxious and lost during these unprecedented times?
1: All of that being said, I think it's also important to just keep your eye on the prize. And the prize in this new normal is survival. Just survive. And this is something that I shared recently to Sirius Studio, um, which is a group of, you know, uh, amazing creatives in the visual arts scene um, who I worked with um, in my capacity as a freelance writer and editor back in the day. Um, I said that, You know, best advice right now is to survive, and to survive implies thinking outside of the box. It it implies disruption. It implies disruption, not in the negative sense, but in the positive sense. That you have to start uh, revisiting, you know, business models of your of 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 your industry. You have to revisit. The business as usual components, and see what kind of possibilities are out there. Um, it really implies return, returning to your core, uh, returning, and asking yourself who you are, what are you about, and then just finding new ways of how to express that. So, that's a very that's a that's a. That's a general advice that can apply to absolutely anybody who's just trying to survive in this new normal. so what are you about um, if you are a stakeholder in the performing arts, then what is the core of the performing arts? you know what is the essence? what is the spirit of it? Uh, why are you invested in it uh, why why do you defy all the odds um you know the advice of your parents if they wanted you to be uh, an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer, you know what I mean? Uh, Defy the uh, the economic challenges of being a worker in the performing arts. Ask yourself, why do I do this? And then find a new avenue to do that in this new normal while we're not allowed to gather in public spaces. Maybe it implies, you know, migrating online going digital. Um, and I was so fortunate to have helped convene this fundraiser called Open House, uh, which is an f- online fundraiser for displaced workers in the performing arts. And yeah, you saw the likes of, you know, uh, Ryan kayab Lisa Makuha Elizalde, Dennis Marasigan, Audie Himora, Leia Salonga. You see the likes of them basically, you know, putting up performances online and these were all live by the way um whether they were doing workshops um uh capacity building programs for stakeholders whether they were doing um uh panel discussions about you know the state of the industry or what it's like to be a female director um in the performing arts landscape basically like there are so many opportunities Uh, within this period of crisis. And uh, it's just as easy now to get left behind if you don't ramp up. Um, I remember attending this talk in New York uh, uh, by Fast Company. It was like a, a festival of ideas that they had and basically they said that you know the bottleneck as we're headed towards the fourth industrial revolution which is basically a shift towards a knowledge economy is that it's not about not being online because now it's sort of vital to be online but the bottleneck is the quality of the content that you put out online so so that's a challenge uh for all industries, uh, as well as for the performing arts, believing it, believe it or not. Um, the National Theater was already doing it. Uh, they were already professionally in high definition recording their shows, and they've been able to monetize their content by uh, airing these in cinemas worldwide. Um, of course, now they've shifted to YouTube and Facebook uh, to be able to, uh, you know, Uh, liberalize access and be able to monetize that content but this is something that the performing arts scene here in manila has yet to even uh, get into and yet to capitalize on so what you're seeing right now are you know live streams of shows that were recorded for posterity's sake (laughs) so the quality is not You know the quality is not yet up to par. I don't know if it's something that you can consign with Netflix, um, because they will have like a sort of like a quality control on the kind of content that they stream. But you know, moving forward, especially once we, uh, once a vaccine is discovered, they say in twelve to eighteen months, and you know there's confidence once again in returning to the theater, then performing arts companies should start looking into that business model um, to be able to help uh, diversify their revenue streams.
0: Before I let you go, I've been asking this to all of my guests previously. What are you looking forward to the most once a sense of normalcy is back?
1: Oh, I'm just looking forward to seeing people again. I've been, I mean, it's different, it's different, you know, being on Zoom with with your friends, with your coworkers, uh, with uh, these new these new connections and networks that uh, I'm touching base with as we are consolidating the live events uh, sector. Uh, you know, it's so funny. I've been working with people who I've never met in person, and with regular. Uh, with our regular activities and meetings, it's almost like I know them um, and yet we haven't met. So I can't wait to just meet them in person and even give them a hug, you know, when it's safer, when, you know, I don't know, like maybe, I think really it's only when there's a vaccine that it's safe to be able to not have to comply with social distancing. but then, yeah, I just can't wait to see people in the flesh and thank them for all their efforts. Um, with Open House alone, the fundraiser that I helped organize, we worked with a network of 300 artists, believe it or not. 300 artists volunteer their time and their effort and their passion um, to be able to provide co- online content, uh, live online content for our fundraiser. And be able to monetize that so that we can generate enough money to provide financial assistance to our most vulnerable workers in the performing arts. That's 300 artists who you know, I was messaging with on Viber or uh, I was at a Zoom conference with. Most of them I've never even met. So, But you feel somehow connected to them because you were you are working together on something that's important for the industry. Um, and it was so funny because, you know, I'm speaking now as a stakeholder um, in the performing arts. You know, as with every show, there's always a cast party, right? So, you know, after two months of programming digital content every day, sometimes two, three times a day, uh, a matinee, an evening, and a late evening um, show. Uh, we we culminated via fundraiser last May fifteen, and then we had a cast party, and it's so it it was so interesting to have a cast party in Zoom. It was so interesting because, of course, cast party you're you know uh, having a drink or two. Um, you are catching up on things. Of course, you're also discussing important things like next steps and all that. Um, but then even after, and the the cast party was also basically live streamed <laughs> on Facebook. Uh, and we also used it as a platform to raise um, even more funds in our last mile <laughs> of open house. Um, but even after the live stream, people stayed on. and. People just wanted to talk and be connected. And the the feelings that I normally go through, like after working on a production and then after a cast party where there's like sepanks or separation anxiety, I I started to feel that. I started to feel that after we concluded our fundraiser. So it's weird that parang, you know, all of this happened online. We were never we never were able to share some kind of physical space, but somehow we were connected. So I I just found it so interesting and weird. Weird interesting and weird. Um but yeah anyway, sorry, back to your question. Um Yeah, I'm just looking
0: forward to seeing people. No, you're fine. You're fine. Yeah, you know, that is all what we are looking forward to as artists, period. That sense of connection. Whether it's with your fellow artists or with the audience, it's that feeling of connecting with someone and sharing the same passion and excitement. So yeah, I get it. I totally get what you're trying to say. Yeah. I think that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining me and giving us an insight on your work and advocacies. Thank you for helping the freelancers and offering your office as a platform to let their voices be heard. It's been great talking with you, and I've enjoyed it so very much. I can't wait to see more of you in action, and I'm so proud we have somebody equally as passionate about the arts like you in Congress. Hopefully we get to have you at the Circuit Performing Arts Theater soon. Well, when we're allowed to, soon. For listeners who are interested in asking some follow-up questions, please leave them a comment section, and we will try to send this to the Office of Congressman DeVanesha and get back to you. You Thank you, Congressman Toff. I hope (laughs) to see you very soon.
1: Thank you. Bye.
0: If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to subscribe on your favorite channels. State of the Arts is a weekly podcast and is available on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. We're also on Facebook and Twitter with the handle at StateoftheArtsPH. Share with your friends, family, and fellow arts aficionados and help us get the word out. For the latest news, including construction timeline and updates on Circuit Performing Arts Theatre, Follow our sponsor, Affiliate Facebook and Instagram pages, Circuit Makati and Make It Makati. Thank you for joining me today. Till next time.